If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Isaiah. Today we're going to begin a six-part series beginning in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, to find Isaiah, it's a little bit more difficult than the New Testament if you're not used to rooting around in the Old Testament. Isaiah is kind of right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. So if you kind of open it right to the middle, you might open up to Psalms or Proverbs, keep going to the right, um, get to Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then you get to Isaiah. Now if you've made it to Jeremiah or Lamentations or Ezekiel, you've gone too far, so turn back and go the other way. If all that's too much, just look in the table of contents and find the page. Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40, and this morning we're going to be in verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to read beginning Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. The ESV says, God's Word, in the English Standard Version says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough place and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the the Lord blows on it, surely people, the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. Father, I'm keenly aware of my need this morning as I open your word. I pray that we would all be aware of our need, Lord. What we all need this morning is to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to preach your word, to communicate the comfort in this passage from your mouth. I pray, Lord, that you would be able to comfort the afflicted. I also pray you would afflict the comfortable, Lord so that we might be able to encounter you today through your word. Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to be in amongst us 
so that we might hear things we would normally miss, and I might be able to preach things that I might not even think to be saying right now. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray and trust you. Amen. Imagine walking in a room and you overhear the following between your two friends. I know, right? I thought she said the exact opposite. Do you know why she said that? All I know is that we have to help. We have a duty to help. And they look at you and they say, what do you think? Now at this point, you don't have enough information to respond intelligently, do you? By my count, you have five pieces of information that you're lacking. You don't know who she is. You don't know what she said. You don't know what's wrong. You don't know how you can help. And you don't even know why you have a duty to help. When you join a conversation midstream, there's basic information that you have to understand so that you can know what's going on. When we jump in Isaiah chapter 40, we're joining a conversation midstream. And this is a conversation that's been going on throughout the whole of the Old Testament, also in Isaiah. Now, if you're like me, most of us don't know the Old Testament as well as we know the New Testament. And so, Isaiah, just so that you can orient yourself to what Isaiah is, Isaiah is, is by most accounts, the most important Old Testament prophet. And it's sometimes called, this book is sometimes called, the fifth gospel. Because the presentation of Jesus is so clear in this book. There are over 600 allusions and quotations from Isaiah in the New Testament. So we should know what this book has to say. It's an important book. It's an important book, but honestly, at times, it's hard to understand. Mostly because it's from the distant past. One author, L.P. Hartley, could have been speaking of Isaiah when he said, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. How differently? Very differently. Now, to understand Isaiah, we need to understand that Isaiah is speaking to the people of Judah, which is Jerusalem, um, and broadly to the nation of Israel. Now, we need to just, I'm going to just give a, a brief summary of where we are in the Old Testament just so that we can have a picture of what's happening. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham from his idolatry and told him this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 1 through 3. God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The plan was that a nation would come forth from Abraham, and that nation would be Israel, and Israel would be God's treasured possession and would, be, would exist to bless the earth. Now, how did it go? If you read from Genesis on to the rest of the Old Testament, you find that it goes badly. They are not a blessing. They are a whole mess of problems. If you want to feel good about yourself and your problems, read the Old Testament. Second Kings gives us a 1,000-year summary of how the nation of Israel fared. 
Now, this is a little bit longer, but I want you to see. This is the context that Isaiah is speaking to. And so the, the chronicler in 2 Kings says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and a shirim on every high hill and every green tree. And they made offerings on all the high places as the nations whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded you, your fathers, and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. And here is a five, a five, five words that summarize the nation of Israel in verse 14. But they would not listen. They would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers, and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. Because whatever you worship, that is not God. You become like that God. So they went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal, all the different false gods. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah. And Judah would be carried off as well. So this is the ministry of, I <coughs> excuse me, of Isaiah, one of the prophets that the Lord sent. The Lord sent Isaiah to the people to warn them not to worship false gods, and they steadfastly refused. If you read Isaiah chapter 1 all the way to chapter 39, the theme is this, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord, and they do not. They do not. They steadfastly refuse to. They do not. In fact, but this was the plan. The Lord, when he commissioned Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is in the very throne room of God. God says, I will send you to a very stubborn and hard-hearted people, and they will not listen. And the people never responded. Isaiah had over 60 years worth of ministry to this nation, and they never responded. 60 years. 
Those of you who want to go into ministry, hope it's not like Isaiah. Sixty years. And it all culminates in chapter 39. One of the last kings of Jerusalem, Judah, is Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is not the most street smart of guys. He's a moron, really. And the Babylonians came and he showed them all the treasure in the palace. <coughs> he showed them all the treasure that they had. Like an idiot. What do you think the Babylonians are going to do? Say, ooh, isn't that nice you have all that? No, they're going to say, that is going to be mine. And that's what Isaiah says. Isaiah comes to him and he says, what do you think you're doing? And then we hear this in verse 5. You can look at um, verse, chapter 39, verse 5, or you can, it'll be projected here. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Why? Here. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my day. And Hezekiah was one of the good kings. So when a good king acts like this, the nation is in trouble. And it was about to be destroyed. So Isaiah announced that the nation of Israel, of Judah, in the southern kingdom was about to be destroyed. They were about to have all of their leaders, all of their prophets, all of their noblemen taken, either destroyed or deported. Their temple would be razed to the ground. They would lose their place and they would lose their identity as a nation. They were about to enter into a period of starvation, pestilence, fear, and violence. And Jeremiah tells us how bad it got in chapter 19. Speaking of Jerusalem, he says, I will make this city a horror a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. Not exactly what we expect on Mother's Day, but this is the state of the nation of Israel. This is what Isaiah announces to the nation. And this is the conversation we're joining in the middle. And so when Isaiah says in chapter 40, comfort, 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 it seemed impossible. Isaiah speaks 100 years into the future to the exiles that would be returning from Babylon to the empty husk of their smoking land. Their temple, their way of life was destroyed. They were desperate. They were despairing. They had nothing. Isaiah, <coughs> speaking for God, knows that they need to be comforted. He knows that they needed a word of comfort. 
And that's what we get in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Now, none of us in this room have gone through what the nation of Israel did, yet we need comfort as well. All of us at one time or another need to be comforted. Not so that we can be comfortable, but so that we can be strengthened. Our situation may not be as dire as Israel's, but you might feel just as desolate. You might feel desolate on the inside. You might be struggling in ways that you might not even be able to put words to, but you feel desolate. You feel lost. You feel like an empty husk. Maybe you suffer day by day with pain and anguish of a breaking down body. Maybe you remember loss that you can't even stop crying about. Maybe there's pain seeping into your soul that you can't find reason to hope. Maybe disappointment meets you with the sunrise. Where can you find comfort? Perhaps you're caretaking for someone who needs long-term help and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Where can you find comfort? Perhaps raging storms of financial uncertainty are on your horizon, and you know that just around the corner is a hurricane of crippling debt or job loss or bankruptcy, and you feel like that's just about to break over your head. Where can you find comfort? Maybe you're just discouraged. Everything you thought was going to happen has gone up in smoke, and you can't do anything about it. And it doesn't seem like there's any hope. Where can you find comfort? Maybe you're just fighting against the ever-destructive inferno of regret. The could-haves and would-haves and should-haves dance before your eyes. (coughs) And you behold the destruction of bad and sinful choices. Where can you find comfort? Maybe fear stalks you like a predator. And no matter how good your day is, you always see it in your peripheral vision. Where can you find comfort? Maybe you have giants in your land. The giants of real life are menacing you. These giants, maybe working in a job you hate, having no quiet moments because of the little ones, maybe fighting just to pay rent. Where can you find comfort? Maybe life just has you in a submission hold. And you're about to give up on God because you wonder if he cares at all. He seems absent. And you say to yourself, I don't know how many more disappointments and struggles I can handle. I can't do this. Where can you find comfort? Well, today, I'm going to direct us to an old prophet who spoke to a people in a very different situation than us, but who gives comfort just the same, if we listen. We don't need momentary relief. We need something better. We need something stronger. We need something sturdy. We can't just say, let's look on the brighter side of life. What we need is comfort directly from the hand of God. And that's what we get in our passage. Our God promises in this passage that he will keep us at all costs. He will keep us at all costs. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, here's the message of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. God will keep you at all costs. And I see this in four different ways. First, 
He reminds us that we are His. This is in verses 1 and 2. Like I said earlier, the people of Israel had wandered away for so long, if there was any group that should have been disowned by God, it was them. But instead, He offers comfort by saying, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. He still owns them as His people. He still identifies Himself with them, saying, You are my people and I am your God. They had sinned grievously, but yet he still identifies with them. They might have abandoned him, but he had not abandoned them. Not only were they his people, they were completely forgiven. He wants the prophet to speak to the people tenderly. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly (coughs) and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The iniquity, her sins, pardoned. She is thoroughly forgiven. Now when the text says double for all her sins, it does not mean that Israel paid twice what she should have for her sins. After all, she was only in captivity for 80 years. And she worshipped false gods for a millennium. Rather, it means there's no possibility of any punishment left. These people who did not act like his people are now called my people. Why? Because God promised to keep them at all costs. Their problems were of their own making, but the Lord who promised to keep them forgave them. And you know what? We're not so different than they are. Many of our problems, many of our most difficult problems of our own making, we sin by being unkind, we sin by trying to control things, We sin by lashing out in anger. We blame other people for our own failures. We're disappointed, and so we point the finger all over the place. We're diligently self-righteous. We're too proud to accept help. A lot of our problems are of our own making. Yet, we can look here and see in Isaiah chapter 40 that our God will not abandon us even when when we make problems for ourselves. He doesn't just go, well, look at what you did. He doesn't say, if you, act, if you don't act like my people, you are not my people. In fact, there's an intensification in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're not just his people, we're his children. 1 John 1, 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. See, this is the intensification of comfort for us today. The Father above is our Father. We are in His family. This means that He is not against us when we fail. If you're genuinely saved and you genuinely follow Jesus, when you are convicted of sin and you feel for all the world that you should be ejected from His presence and forever in the penalty box with Him and live life on probation, When you feel that way, you have to tell yourself that's only the way things feel because he will never disown you. See, this is the kind of love that we have in our God that when even we have those problems of our own making, he will not send us away from himself. Christians, you cannot out-sin his grace. 
Your God will keep you at all costs. Your God will keep you at all costs. You are His. The second comfort we have today is that His glory has come. His glory has come. He did not stay distant. Now let me say this. If any of us had created a nation and given it life, and it steadfastly refused to worship and follow and serve us for a thousand years, if you're like me, they're done. But that's not the way the Lord is. He is different. He doesn't just forgive them. He comes to them. He comes to them. This is, this is the very famous passage that Luke picks up on in Luke chapter 1 when he describes the ministry of John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When dignitaries would come to a foreign nation, they would build a road so that the dignitary could go on that road and make it to his destination. That's what's being talked about in verses 4. Uh, verse 4, every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the uneven ground become level, and the rough places a plain. We know that John the Baptist showed up, and he announced that the Lord would come. And here's the promise in verse 5 that we take for granted. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now when the, people of Israel, when the people, the original audience, heard Isaiah chapter 40 and thought about the Lord revealing His glory, there was one passage that they went to, and that would be the passage in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, he asks God this. He says, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so then the Lord revealed himself to Moses. He hid him in a rock. And the glory of the Lord passed before Moses, and he only caught a glimpse of his back. And the Lord declared himself, as we heard in Psalm 103, like this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord showed his glory to Moses through his ears primarily. But yet something different is being signaled here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. The glory of the Lord we see shall be revealed so that all flesh shall, shall see it. This means not just Israel. This means the whole world. So Isaiah is signaling the promise 
of something happening at some point in the future where the glory of the Lord will be obvious, will be clear, so that everybody on the planet can say, I have seen the glory of the Lord. How did the Lord show his glory? He became a man. People did not have to be hidden behind a rock to behold the glory of God the Son. They saw Jesus and beheld the very glory of God. The glory of Jesus did not stay at a respectable distance. He came himself to save his people himself. He became one of his creatures to show the links that he would go to save his people. When we say he, saved, he will keep us at all costs, his cost works tremendous. He departed heaven. He departed heavenly adoration for earthly scorn. He who created all things became one of his creatures. He who called out the stars one by one became a baby. The one who holds all things together with the word of his power was held by his mother. The glory of the Lord came. And all flesh saw it. He will keep us at all costs. And it seems as we look at the cross, he will keep us at any cost. He died like a petty criminal. The glory that Isaiah was pointing to in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, did not seem glorious at the time when the radiant Son of God was beaten past recognition and hung on a Roman cross. But the glorious part of what he did there was to pay for the penalty of our sin so that we as Christians right now know that there is no wrath that remains for any Christian. There is no punishment that remains for any Christian. Your God will keep you at all costs, even the cost of sacrificing his son. Look at the length he came to to save you. Those of us that are struggling, will he abandon you now if he's come this far and done this much? Will he leave you and forget you and say, just fend for yourself and figure it out? If he died for you, and rose for you and ascended to the right hand of the Father for you? No way. Your God will keep you at all costs. We've seen that we're His. We've seen His glory comes. We also see that His Word stands. His Word stands. And He makes this comparison in verses 6 through 8 between the enduring Word of God and the passing transience of humanity. Verse 6, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. He wants to make sure we get this. He compares this to grass. He says we're going to fade. But then look at this at the end, second part of verse 8. But the word of our God will stand forever. The word 
of our God will stand forever. The returning exiles must have wondered if God's past promises were still good, given all their sins. But God had committed himself to them, and he says this, Though you come and though you go, the word of the Lord stands forever. Friends, even the strongest of us are sturdy as grass. We rise up and live for a while. We die and then we're forgotten. But not so the word of God. When God speaks, his word stands and it stands forever. Ever. His word does not wither. His word does not waste away. His word does not return void. His word is forever. It is fixed and unchanging. Great men and women have come and gone, but his word stands. Empires have come and gone. His word still stands. Civilizations that were once thriving are now forgotten, but yet his word still stands. Compared to his word, the United States is a small and passing thing. Do you see what kind of comfort this gives us? When you read something in the Word of God, it is the surest thing you can imagine. Because when the Lord promises something, He does not go back. That brings great comfort. This is not, when you read anything in the Scriptures, this is not like what you read on Instagram, it's not like what you hear in the news, it's not what you read in any other book. This book endures forever because of the character of the God who spoke it. So we find a promise in the Bible, we can hold on to it knowing it will not change. He will not go back. When Jesus promises, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That stands forever. What if I sin? He's still there. What if I fail? He's there. What if I feel abandoned? He's there. What if I'm alone? He's there. And he's here. Your God will keep you at all costs. Why? Because he said so. And he does not change. Your God will keep you at all costs. We've seen that we're his. We've seen that his glory came. We've seen that his word stands. And probably the most comforting thing as we close this morning is this, he himself leads. He himself leads. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. See, the image here is God coming, destroying his enemies. When he bears his mighty right arm, no one can stand against him. And all who oppose him are ground into powder. No evil will ultimately ever go unpunished. The Almighty God sees, and he knows one day. He knows all the evil done. He knows all the evil done in the world. He knows all the evil done against you. One day he will destroy those who seem to have all the ability to get away with everything they want to get. People who perpetrate evil without conscience, one day they will pay. They will behold the mighty right hand of God coming down upon them if they do not repent. That's, after, that's how he goes after his enemies, but look at how he comes to his people. Verse 11. He will tend his flock 
like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom or put them on his lap. He will gently lead those that are with young. See, our God uses his might to protect his people. And he's not frightening, and he's not scary. See what he does? He gathers up his people. He's a, he's a shepherd. We don't interact with many shepherds today. I've never met a shepherd. But shepherds knew each of their sheep. They knew each of their sheep. They knew which ones were weak. They knew which ones were strong. They knew which ones were pregnant. And that's the image we have here of our Lord. He says, <laughs> he's a shepherd. He gathers all of us up in his arms, and he, and he invites us essentially to come sit in his lap. And he gently leads us. He knows us. He knows each of us better than we know ourselves. He knows where we're weak. He knows where we need help. He knows what discourages us. He knows what makes us afraid. In fact, he knows what we need better than we do. Just like the shepherds of old knew their sheep better than they knew themselves. Our shepherd knows us better than we know ourselves. Who is our shepherd? Our shepherd is Jesus. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for my sheep. And that's the fundamental reason for you to have comfort this morning. It's that your shepherd knows you. I know my own, he says. I know my own. If you're a Christian, you are one of his own. And he's such a good shepherd that he gives us not what we want, oftentimes, but what we need. He gives us what is best, not what makes sense. Oftentimes, he leads us through hardship instead of around it. Why? Because that's the way our God keeps us at all costs. Because he knows what we need better than we do. We may, some of us, need troubles to come into our lives to remind ourselves that we cannot keep ourselves by ourselves. See, we live in this illusion that we think we're in control and we've got everything we need and we are set. That's false. We need a shepherd to lead us. And we have a good shepherd in Jesus. Oftentimes, one of the reasons hardship comes to our lives is so that we can learn to trust somebody besides ourselves. And we see in verse 11 that the one to trust is this one 
He gathers up the lambs and carries them. You can just see the tenderness here. He knows. He gently leads those who are with young. See what that means? He's not going to press those who are pregnant. He's not going to push those too hard who can't stand it, who can't, who can't bear up under that. He will keep you. And I can promise you this. Your life and the things in your life will not go the way that you think. And oftentimes, they will not make sense. They won't. But the comfort we have is a comfort not in getting all the answers and the whys and the wherefores with information, but the comfort we have is the comfort of a good shepherd who cares for us. His ways are not our ways. And if you were able to understand everything he was doing with your life, you would be God, but you're not. You and I and all of us are just sheep who need to be led and cared for. If that's something you doubt, here's some homework. Talk to a seasoned saint, somebody who's been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years. Ask them to tell you of the things that the Lord has brought them through and the fruit. Instead of giving us understanding, he gives us himself. See, friends, the comfort we have today is our Lord and his promise that he will keep us at all costs. His ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His love for us is better than our love for him. He may not explain everything to us so that we can understand, but He gives Himself for us so that He can keep us until the end. And He has given Himself to you without reserve. Your life will have trouble, but take heart. Your Savior has overcome the world. And he cares about you. He knows what hurts right now in your heart and in your life. And he doesn't just go, oh well. He invites you to come to him. Entrust yourself to him. Put yourself at his mercy and find that he is good. He is good. He is better than you are to yourself. That's who he is. That's the glory of the Lord that we serve. He will keep you. That's the comfort we need. He will keep you at all costs through many and any trials, toils, or snares. That's the comfort the comfort for us today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person in this room struggling, Lord. I pray for 
moms who look back and wish they could do things differently. I pray for moms who are grieving at lost children, at wayward children, at children that have passed away. Lord, I pray that you would, I pray that they would find comfort in you. You are the good shepherd who cares for your own and keeps your own. If any here don't, do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would be, that they would want to entrust themselves to you, the one who treats us better than we deserve, better than we treat ourselves, who loves us without reserve, but with an infinite, complete, total love. I pray for the rest of us, Lord, who are discouraged and have hardships pressing against us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to entrust ourselves to you and know that whether we can understand this or not, whether we can know what's happening or not, Lord, I pray that we can look to you and know that you are working things together for your glory and for your fame. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be comforted pray that we would be comforted by your strong hand. I pray that we would be comforted knowing that whatever comes to us, you will work it out for our good and your glory. I pray for whatever hardship we face, Lord, that we would be able to look away from that hardship and look to you and experience comfort. Lord, one day we'll have information, but, 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 but today we have you. And that's much better. And so, Lord, I pray that you, as our comfort, would strengthen us today and this week. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.